are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Michael Robbins. He is a licensed psychotherapist, Qigong and Taoist meditation teacher, artist, and poet based in Somerville, Massachusetts. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome, Brendan. So glad to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, we haven't had anybody on the show that has quite your background. Um, I think it's it's fascinating how you're incorporating sort of like Eastern philosophies into your work. And um, yeah, I wanted to just dive right in and just first give listeners just a bit of background as to uh, who you are mm-hmm. and the kind of work you're doing. Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, I was thinking about this before the, the show and kind of going over it in my head. Mm-hmm. And I think to understand what I'm doing now at the age of 62, I really have to just kind of um, thumbnail sketch, you know, where I came <laughs> from and how I came to this work to begin with. Um, And I think that's true for every therapist or every coach that you have to have some sense of what you were, you know, what are you bringing to the work as a person? And so I I grew up in New York City and uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, um, a, my father was one of the founders of the expressive therapy movement and a psychoanalyst and my mom was a theater director. So uh, I grew up with, you know, uh, some of the best psychoanalysts in New York uh, around our dinner table often. Mm. And as a, uh, a teenager, you know, we'd have discussions and, uh, you know, we'd talk about philosophy and art and therapy. And um, I had no idea who I was really talking to at the time that these were quite influential people. Um, but I was just, you know, a kid uh, at the dinner table. And, and that seeded my whole interest in the in the field uh you know and this was in the uh 70s and so then uh what happened from there was i had a strong sense partially i think my mom is also a dancer that the body mind connection was is really key to uh to productive uh, to a productive healing process and that uh, that there really isn't such a thing as a a healthy mind without a healthy body or a healthy body without a healthy mind in a deep sense. Um, that, that it's one integrated unit. And um, so really from a very young age at the age of 17, I started to study Tai Chi, uh, which probably many of your listeners have seen at least, um, with one of the uh, students of the first a very authentic Tai Chi master to, to come over from Taiwan uh, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that that training, uh, and, you know, when I still teach it and, and practice, is, is really, I would say, foundational in a way to everything that came after it, uh, in that it gave me a um, keen sensitivity 
to what, what we might call the chi field of summon or the field of presence. And that, um, to me, one's capacity for presence, one's capacity to read someone else's energy, to create a, um, a welcoming atmosphere inside of which someone can truly land, feel safe in a deep way, and begin to unwind whatever traumas, whatever experiences they're bringing into a therapeutic context uh, is a foundational skill. So, um, you know, we, if I was gonna say what is, you know, like a, uh, the keynote of my brand, I would say it is the capacity to hold presence or to create a field of presence that um, is based in a sensitivity to someone's energy, to uh, being with someone in a way where I'm observing how they're breathing, how they're living in their body, how they are uh, comfortable or uncomfortable in their own skin, um, where they're flowing or where there's a streaming of energy in them and creativity going through their body-mind and also where there's uh, blockages or places of numbness, places of um, a loss of contact with their own creative essence, with their, um, you know, the, the depth of, some people would call it their true nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, a, a core problem probably that everyone it brings to therapy, but maybe also to coaching, is a sense of being separate from their the wellspring of their creativity and their essence. Um, that when someone is truly landed in themselves, they have access to a fountain of creativity and a fountain of, of um, knowledge that enables them to be skillful, to be effective in life um, and to solve the problems that uh, come their way uh, as well as to be happy, which I think is a you know fundamental goal for most of us human beings is mm -hmm. to live a life that's as happy as possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, so one of the foundations to your work, like I mentioned, was um, Qigong. And, mm -hmm. and I know that a lot of listeners who may not be familiar with it are mm -hmm. familiar with, you know, uh, yoga, for example, meditation. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you to maybe help distinguish between these different approaches mm -hmm. and maybe what makes Qigong different from, from yoga and maybe some, some, mm -hmm. some benefits and how to contrast those two. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, I would say they're similar and different, you know, so there's a lot of similarities between them. Uh, they come, one comes from China, the other comes from India. India, right. But the, they're both about, I mean, yoga means to join or to, to yoke together. So they're both about um, creating an integrated uh, experience that where we experience ourselves as a unified being so that... Um, I would say that, you know, and there are so many yogas out there and so many different yoga teachers. Um, similarly, there are many different Qigong schools and many different Qigong teachers, if you really get into that world. Uh, so the, the hallmark of how I practice Qigong is that um, I pay very close attention to the nervous system. Uh, 
so that um, yes, we're we're wanting our alignments to be uh, in place. We're wanting to be standing or moving in a way that is uh, connected to the earth that we're grounded. And uh, I don't really teach the martial arts aspect of Tai Chi, um, but it is a martial art as well. And you know that's all based on having proper alignments. Um, the from a meditative and psychological point of view, uh, what we're trying to do is to create a coherent, integrated uh, nervous system, which is, I would say, right at the heart of the whole uh, of our physiology, that our nerves in, um, affect our muscles, affect our joints, affect our uh, endocrine system, um, affect uh, you know, our capacity to communicate, um, and, uh, and are really the electrical system that consciousness rides. So when we're doing Qigong, we're trying to move in a conscious way that um, is uh, integrating our whole body mind, both from our feet up to our head, but also in the depth of our consciousness. So that, you know, the higher levels of Qigong, um, we're really talking about creating a, a sense of stillness in the center of movement. So that, uh, you know, some of the best uh, teachers that I've had, um, they move and at the same time, they're totally still inside. So that um, we're integrating, and this is a psychological issue as well as a, um, issue in Qigong practice, mm -hmm. how do we maintain our center in the middle of movement? How do we maintain a coherent, relaxed, connected uh, quality of being while in the middle of the marketplace, while in the middle of something that may be stressful, uh, something you know that um, may be requiring a, a tremendous amount of uh, processing of energy and information for us, how do we do that and not lose our center, not lose the stillness of our connection to our being while we are in motion? Um, and I think that's also, you know, I know this is also a coaching podcast and I, I do work with several people in business and, you know, even some people who teach at business schools and uh, who are clients of mine. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is an essential skill to be successful in business, if you're coaching someone in business, is to be able to be uh, truly empathic and contactful with the people that you're leading and um, centered uh, while you're processing vast quantities of information and making decisions that are often very stressful uh, and that have great impact on someone's life. Uh, and that's that's a tremendous uh, art that requires a lot of psychological resources, from my point of view, as well as um, a healthy capacity to be settled and rested in one's own body. Uh, so you're not you don't go out of what I call your window of tolerance and become anxious or depressed. Uh, you know that either side of that is a is certainly a problem. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, 
impediment to our happiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, first of all, I mean, I'm I'm happy to see that you've integrated well, kind of the philosophy that uh, speaks out most to you, this kind of Eastern um, philosophy. And I think just generally, you know, psychotherapy has, I think, embraced more of um, more of this kind of shift. I mean, I think classically understanding psychotherapy, right? It's this kind of like mm-hmm. um, it's more focused on what's what's wrong, right? It's more diagnostic, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a neck up, so to speak. <laughs> you know, yes, right. Everything going on, and <laughs> <is a> problem. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, and. Um, I think progressively, though, it's it's become more, I guess, understanding of that, like you just mentioned, that mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. whether it's to do with, you know, um, whether it's to do with yoga or meditation or, or mm-hmm. you know, like you're mentioning now, Qigong and, and, and Taoism. And, um, you know, I, I think it is encouraging, at least. And I'm, I'm was curious to see if, if you felt the same, that that the field of psychotherapy is maybe slowly inching its way to being more accepting of, of this kind of uh, shift? Yeah, well, I, um, um, I actually think it's more than slowly. I think that, you know, if you look at, you know, just Google mindfulness, uh, mindfulness and therapy, mindfulness, you know, when I started my meditation studies in the 70s, late 70s and 80s, it was much more a kind of far out thing that was coming from India or uh, China. You know, we had different gurus coming in, but now uh, there are big uh, conferences that are all about mindfulness and psychotherapy or mindfulness and coaching. The mindfulness is the new buzzword. Um, so, um, so I'm, I'm thrilled that it's becoming more central. And, and I, I also think that, um, I was actually just talking to my father about this, who's 91 years old and, you know, an old wise person in the in the field. And uh, we were saying that the whole training of therapists, maybe the training of coaches as well, really has to be um, uh, changed and, and maybe revolutionized to include right from the beginning more body awareness, more uh meditation training and uh, body-centered disciplines. Um, I, I forgot to mention, I was also a body worker for a long time. Maybe I did mention that, I can't remember. But um, that to be a therapist, uh, if you have that training in, um, and you also have developed yourself in that way, you're way ahead of the game. Um, and so this comes to another point here, which is in, with the younger therapists that I supervise, you know, they'll often ask me, ask me, well, how do I become a better therapist? And what I tell them universally is work on yourself. Mm. Do your own personal development. That's the core. It's not, um, you know, you can learn tons of techniques but without your own personal development, those techniques are going to be rather hollow. Um, and it's going to be, uh, they're not going to have the transformative value that they could. That what makes any technique truly transformational is the personal development of the practitioner. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's absolutely true. I wanted I wanted to ask you also about you know for anybody listening who is considering um, maybe structuring their either 
therapy practice or coaching practice, maybe mm -hmm. around these Eastern philosophies uh, and mindfulness in general. Do you notice mm -hmm. that your clients are already quite familiar with with these schools of thought before they approach you, or is it um, is it more of kind of like a curiosity that mm -hmm. you know they're looking to take to that next level? Uh, I think there's a range. Um, you know, uh, in part because I've been doing this for a while, uh, you know, I've been in practice for 35 years, um, that uh, people people come to me somewhat by reputation. But, you know, they might come, some people come with a tremendous amount of background and are really looking for someone who can take them to the next level because they have heard that I have, have this background. Other people have no idea about it, but just heard that I was a good therapist. And they, so they come for that. And then um, in a way that's the most exciting because then I get to introduce, uh, them, yeah. introduce them to it and be both an educator mm. and, a, and a therapist. And I think that there's um, a lot of therapy is about learning and uh, discovering, you know, what are some of the most skillful techniques that have stood the test of time in terms of um, helping people to be effective and happy. Right. Um, right. Okay, perfect. Um, I also noticed that one of the kind of unique elements of your of your website, and it seems your your practice in general, is that you also publish your poetry and artwork. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes, well, I've, I've, I've been doing this show, and I've been speaking to therapists that also enjoy, you know, art and poetry, but they don't necessarily publish it on their mm -hmm. therapy site. And so, <laughs> and so I was wondering, to, to yeah. that end, like, do you, do you incorporate those art forms in your therapy, um, or, or, or if, if you don't directly incorporate it, how do they inform the work you're doing as a therapist? Yeah, well, sometimes I will directly incorporate it. it depends on what someone's coming for. So I do work with you know a fair number of um, artists and musicians, um, creative people. So uh, I would so a couple of things to say about the choice to publish my artwork and my poetry on my website and to have it all be one thing. Um, you know, I, it comes back to the philosophy again that one's personal development is really what is transformative there. So that when someone is scoping out, you know, who they want to work with, I think that it's good for them to be uh, as informed as possible about uh, who, you know, what the uh, strengths and vulnerabilities of the person that they're uh, going to see are. And that, uh, so here, here's another kind of principle there is that who we are creates a field of possibilities that will both expand and limit the possibilities for the client. Mm. So the, um, the choice to be vulnerable and open and some of the po poems that I are published on the website are very personal um, is a window into who I am. And, uh, and my own belief when this goes counter to a lot of very traditional <laughs> therapies, therapists. It does. <laughs> yeah. is, is that, um, that I'm a real person 
and that uh, I want to have a real relationship right from the beginning with someone. I'm not going to intrude my stuff into the therapy session. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to client on my client. I'm not going to talk about my own personal problems with them. But uh, I, uh, it's a, I believe that the relationship, if it's truly going to be transformative, has to be a real one. It has to be a relationship that is based in a true sense of care, also has professional boundaries, um, and is a you know is um, really walking that line between someone who's professional but also a, a human being who is a fellow traveler on the path with the client and is sharing their life experience, uh, hopefully in a way that opens up new possibilities for the person coming for therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not just leading by example, which is kind of the first thing you mentioned, um, you know, showing your full vulnerable self. Um, <clears throat> it's not just that, but it's also the fact, I think even more importantly, you know, we talk so much about how it's the relationship between client and practitioner that really is what's doing most of the heavy lifting. It's doing a mm -hmm. lot of the transformative work. It's not, yeah. it's not just the words being said, during session, it's not just maybe some homework being done in between sessions. It's really the sense of trust, mm -hmm. the the you know the confidence and the and the and the it's the relationship really that you have between the two parties that's doing a lot of the important work. And and by by publishing your more personal stuff like the poetry and the artwork, I think you're right. I mean, I think that would definitely enhance that relationship because it does humanize you um and it's also i mean it is kind of bewildering to me a little bit when in light of that real like evidence-based truth that it's the relationship that's doing the work in light of that a lot of therapists structure their practice in a very kind of generic you know mm -hmm. like plain kind of way almost like somebody just gave them a generic theme for a therapy site and they just like basically copied and pasted it directly on their site. I mean, I'm not sure how something mm -hmm. like that is supposed to maybe, I don't know, spark a, <laughs> a mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. you know, real relationship. So I think what you're doing is, is, is unique, but also courageous and um, like psychotherapeutically meaningful is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, actually, let me just um, say the downside of it too, because there is a downside to it. There's a mm. potential downside, uh, and there's a reason why a lot of therapists will not be that vulnerable and not be that personal, because you can have someone come. You know, there are certain kinds of um, deep personality problems where you know someone comes into a therapy session and they uh, project into the therapist. Mm. Uh, a, you know, say a desire for an ideal parent, and you know, and they they're looking for someone, so that the the relationship actually can become overweighted for some problems. You know, where where someone develops a dysfunctional dependency on the therapist, interesting, uh, and um, and wants to know too much about their personal life and is too interested in their personal life. And when someone, uh, and, and I have had people like that, and with someone like that, I, you know, I'm actually, during the sessions, I'm more restrained. 
in terms of my own um, bringing in myself or, and, or having too much disclosure. I mean, there might be disclosure on the site, but in the session itself, if someone is uh, prone to a kind of um, codependent relationship with a therapist, where they're really looking for a substitute parent or mother, mm. um, that can be problematic. Um, and, you know, so then I might accent a little bit more their own strengths and their own capacities to deal with life. Right. And, um, you know, and, and keep on and not be so um, personal, even though I'm hopefully still going to be very warm and friendly and connecting. Um, but, you know, so there, there is a reason why yeah. a lot of therapists <laughs> are uh, hesitant to be so vulnerable and open. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a really great point. And, um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not a psychotherapist, so I I definitely appreciate the 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 input there. Um, I'm sure that is true for for a lot, if not most of the cases I'm talking about. But I, I still kind of wish that in a lot of these cases, um, you know, professionals wouldn't, you know, practitioners wouldn't be so, um, I don't know, maybe reticent to to share some of that personal side, because I, I, I do think it adds a nice touch. Maybe I'm unique in this respect. I'm not sure, but I, I do think it adds a nice humanizing yeah. element to the to the individual. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, and clearly, I'm I'm in your camp. There. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, and the healthier a person is, the more they can handle it, and you know, and uh, uh, the more it's it's just adds to the richness of the experience, mm -hmm. uh, and the you know the depth to which someone can travel right. with you. Right. Yeah. All right, uh, Michael, I, I wanted to ask you one last question. It's a question I like to ask um, mm -hmm. most of the guests on the show. So thinking back on your career in psychotherapy, I know that you were obviously exposed to all this from a very early age, but um, can you think of what's been the most challenging aspect of this work? You know, I think I, I think listeners kind of understand the positives, right? Seeing that mm -hmm. transformative mm -hmm. change and the aha moment and things of that nature, but... I think sometimes what can be hard is often different from person to person. So what have mm -hmm. you found to be maybe the most challenging aspect and how have you worked to overcome that in your practice? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I would say that the most challenging aspect is when someone comes that really is right at the edge of my sphere of confidence competence, you know, when um, uh, they're really, particularly early on, you know, I would say that in every, every therapist learns the most by their mistakes. And those mistakes are often painful, both to the therapist and to the client that and uh, personally, my the mistakes that I have learned the most from are they dovetail with our, what we were talking about with the vulnerability was when um, I uh, would overextend myself to a client, you know, that I, I, um, uh, I don't know how to say it. it. Let's say my bent is to become deeply engaged with someone when they come for a therapy. And usually that works out just beautifully. But occasionally, um, I have found that it's uh, pouring water into a bucket with a hole in it. 
Mm. And, um, and I may not even know that the bucket has a hole in it until I'm way down the road. And then, uh, and then I'm in the middle of a mess that is partially my own creation, creating of my own creation, uh, because I um, promise something that I really can't deliver on implicitly. Right. Uh, it might not be an explicit promise, but the implicit promise of being able to fill in someone's deficits. You know, so say if someone had a, a, an extremely um, difficult childhood with a lot of deficits, a lot of trauma, there often is a, uh, a deep and important wish that they could have a, um, a corrective emotional experience with the therapist that would, would fill in all those deficits. Now, of course, you want to have a corrective emotional experience with a therapist, but there are also many deficits which will never be filled in and which you need to be grieved, which you need to be uh, held together. We need to hold the pain of it together. And um, uh, particularly earlier on in my career, I would say that um, the belief that love can uh, cure everything um, was a belief that I had to really uh, question in, in certain cases, that it's not just about love. It's also about um, grieving what didn't happen, holding the pain of that, and that actually real therapeutic love might have more to do with holding, holding that grief and not... Uh, um, promising either implicitly or explicitly that you could um, ever fill in a deficit for someone, certain kinds of deficits. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then just really being with the heartbreak of that and bearing the heartbreak, bearing the pain as a therapist uh, was, uh, I think that's a critical lesson for all therapists is to, you know, when they feel their own pain with a client, to not try to make it better, to not, that often trying to make it better is exactly, it's like healing, healing can be a problem in a funny way. Mm -hmm. the, the conventional notion of healing could be a problem in that the real healing might be more to learn how to bear, uh, you know, some of the existential realities of being a human being rather than um, uh, actually um, looking, you know, it's like the person who goes around looking, are you my mommy, are you my mommy, are you my mommy? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's a trap that a lot of people with a good heart um fall into of trying to be be someone's mommy yeah i think i think what you and correct me if i'm wrong here sometimes sometimes the grief is the healing and it shouldn't necessarily be fixed quote unquote um right. sometimes there's nothing really to fix it's just um kind of like a grieving process that the client has to has to go through and you're just simply there to help facilitate that grieving process right exactly yeah yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I've had related discussions with therapists about 
you know, similar topics where, for example, they their intake assessment might not have been as thorough as it should have been, especially when they were first starting out. And like you just said, it turned out that the client had some kind of deep psychological trauma when they were younger. Maybe it was the death of a parent or or something or a really traumatic experience of another kind. And that didn't come out until session three or four or seven. And then mm. they were put in a really <clears throat> difficult situation because at that point, the therapist mm. was simply not trained to... Um, to work with the client on that particular issue, or mm -hmm. maybe it was a coach even that was definitely not trained to work with the client on that issue at all. And so at that point, you're faced with a very difficult, uh, you know, it's kind of not really even a decision because at that point you have no, you have nowhere to turn. And so what you have to do is refer the client out to somebody that can help, but then, mm -hmm. but then you're faced with the, you know, I guess, risk or shame of, you know, you know, you are risking the client feeling abandoned at that point, because there is that relationship. And then what you said, that implicit um, promise that there would have been some kind of resolution from the relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I hear you loud and clear there. And I'm, I'm glad that you um, mm -hmm. share that, because I think a lot of beginning therapists and coaches would be well served and their clients would be well served to keep that in mind. Um, mm -hmm. when they do their initial intake to to kind of make sure that they mm -hmm. were clear on the real background that the client is coming in with. so And their own sphere of competence. And, yeah, uh, right. And, and what, just to build on what you said, you know, I think that it's possible that when that happens, rather than referring the client out, which may be the best thing to do, but the other thing that could happen is that the therapist then goes and gets a ton of supervision and, and mm. really uh, uses the case, which is right at the edge of his sphere of competence or her sphere of competence to learn how to work with something that they haven't worked with before. And, uh, and particularly for a young therapist, um, that could be a, a, a transformational experience. Uh, and to use, you know, I often, the other thing to say is that uh, my best teachers have been my clients. Mm -hmm. That every client that comes um, has to teach me how to be the best therapist for them. And uh, even after doing this for, you know, decades, um, I, my uh, stance is that when someone walks in, I am in a learning mode, uh, really paying attention to what is the most skillful kind of ap approach and presence to bring to this particular person? And I don't assume that I know. I assume that that's a process that's going to be evolving over time. And um, uh, as I said, some of my best or my best trainers, my best um, teachers have been the many, many clients that have come in and uh, and taught me how to be uh, the best therapist for them. Right, right. And if I can say so, from, from my understanding of the way that psychotherapy kind of historically was perceived as, I think that's one other important evolution that psychotherapy has had over the past, you know, 50 plus years, is that instead of this singular focus on 
<clears throat> you know, psychotherapist as expert of mm -hmm. the DSM or whatever the case may be. Yeah, yes. Now it's yeah. become more of a collaborative process where the evolution is really happening on both sides. And which I think is kind of a hallmark of coaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, coaching mm -hmm. kind of took that idea as part of its foundational, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, literature. It's that it is a collaborative process. And I'm glad to see that psychotherapy, as you just mentioned, definitely is starting to take that um, seriously. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael, this was, uh, this was so informative. I, 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 I love your perspective on this. I'm, I have to admit I was, and still am very unfamiliar with kind of Eastern philosophy and, uh, well, mm -hmm. specifically, uh, the kinds that you're involved in, but, um, yeah, I, I think it was, I think it was informative and I want to give listeners a chance to find out more about you and also not least of all to check out your poetry and artwork, which I did check out mm -hmm. your artwork and it was pretty mm -hmm. awesome. So if mm -hmm. you want to give listeners a chance to, to find out where they can find you. Yeah. So, uh, so the best place to, to, um, find out about me would be the website. So it's michaelrobbinstherapy.com, uh, two B's in Robbins and, um, you know, if you just uh, Google that and there is both, uh, you know, there are probably 20 articles that I've written uh, also on that site, as well as the poetry. Um, some of the poetry is available for free. There's one of the books that um, just a little bit of it is available for free. And then uh, it, it was expensive to publish. So I asked the people buy the book because <laughs> uh, it has a bunch of artwork in it too. So it's a four color uh process to yeah do that. yeah um, see what i mean incorporating the art in your work i love it yeah yeah that's great so um yeah so, so just go to the website there and uh you know you can read read about it there's also some uh, qigong courses uh audio files that you can download for free um there's a couple of uh, youtube videos of my doing some qigong um sets and uh, tai chi sets uh, you know, so if you want to see that, um, if you're unfamiliar with how it looks, uh, that's in the under the Qigong tab. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot on that site to explore. Uh, and, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, if you're inspired and want to email me after looking at that, that you can, there's a contact form there, too. So you can, can do that. Great. Perfect. All right. Um, yeah, Michael, thank you again. And I, I really enjoyed the show. I think listeners will as well. And um, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Thank Alrighty. you for having me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.